I think the scriptures today, both Old Testament and the gospel, uh, can be kind of difficult for us and a little bit confusing. Sacrifice of Isaac uh, has challenged scholars and spiritual writers and Jews and Christians uh, for millennia. You know, why would God possibly demand Abraham to sacrifice his first and only son, uh, the, one, the son that God himself gave Abraham uh, in it, miraculously? And in the transfiguration, we kind of listen to the story and think, what actually is going on here? What's the meaning of this? Uh, why is Jesus revealing his glory in this way? What's the kind of the purpose? Uh, and I think we need to dive into these texts because they're, they're rich. So Abraham has always been seen as our father in faith. Uh, St. Paul points to this in, in multiple letters, that Abraham is not our father because he's the father of Isaac, is the father of Jacob, who has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. Uh, he's our father because of his faith. And so what is it about Abraham's faith that's kind of a model for all of us? Uh, so first, Abraham leaves his, the rest of his family, uh, extended family, with his wife and goes uh, into the desert to follow the Lord just on the word of a promise. Uh, so that's kind of his first act of faith that we've always seen as somewhere profound. He's promised descendants, and then decades later, when you know, Sarah's 90 and Abraham's 100, they finally have Isaac. Uh, and then another 37 years has passed, kind of in a mysterious way. What, what's, what's the Lord going to do now? And now, 37 years later, the Lord calls Abraham to sacrifice that one son, you know, the, the one hope. Uh, for the fulfillment of the promise that God himself gave him. Uh, so Cor- Soren Kierkegaard, who's a, a philosopher from Denmark, he had a profound meditation on this story. He's not a theologian, um, but he just more talks about the struggle that Abraham faces here. Uh, that he's confused and conflicted and feels alienated from everyone around him because the Lord has given him a command that doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, so Kierkegaard says, By faith, Abraham went out into the land of his fathers and became a sojourner in the land of promise. Uh, He left one thing behind and took one thing with him. He left behind his earthly understanding and took faith with him. Because otherwise, he would not have wandered forth, but would have thought this whole thing unreasonable. So Abraham sees kind of how crazy this is, uh, but, but he takes a leap of faith into the kind of darkness of the mystical life. Uh, and so it, it's, it's not possible, according to Kierkegaard, for Abraham to, to obtain faith unless he experiences a movement from kind of his community, the comforts, to this isolation of this call that God is calling him to. And I think Kierkegaard's interpretation of faith, of what it means to have faith, has kind of taken root in our society in many ways. We see here faith presented as a kind of lonely act, as an individual act of me and God. My faith is between me and God. Uh, And in a sense, I have to break from everyone else to make my faith real. Now, that's kind of how, in, in many ways, we seem to see faith today. It's as a matter of the individual. Uh, And however, kind of, there's some beauty to this meditation especially with the part about Abraham and his struggles. Uh, but in the end, Soren Kierkegaard is wrong. That is not 
what our faith is. And that's not what God calls us to. Uh, I don't want to say he's completely wrong about the experience of it. Because he does kind of describe well the, the existential angst that we might feel when we feel God calling us to something that we don't totally, uh, totally understand. It's actually rare for God to call us to something that we do totally understand. But we do hold to the fact that God is never unreasonable. God will never call us to something that goes against reason. Uh, as Catholics, we will die on that hill, faith and reason together. Uh, God never calls us to a contradiction. But when we look back at the sacrifice of Isaac then, you know, what's the reasonableness? It's kind of an easy out to just say that God's calling him to something unreasonable. First, I think we need to look at the context of this story, because it, it, it kind of reshapes the picture for us. So Isaac was born to Sarah when she was 90 years old, uh, which is crazy enough in itself. But also Sarah dies while they're on this trip. Uh, and, that's, and Sarah dies when she's 127 years old. So what does that mean? That means Isaac, when, when they went up the mountain for the sacrifice, Isaac was 37 years old. And Abraham was 137 years old. Uh, so as they head up this mountain, Isaac's carrying all the gear. Uh, he's a young, hulking kind of man, uh, I assume. He's a manual laborer in the ancient world. And, uh, and Abraham is 137. So who's really in control here? Kind of changes the image in our head. Uh, what does the image become? It becomes a father willingly giving his son over to death for the Lord. And a son who is totally entrusting himself to his father. Isaac was a willing sacrifice. He had to have been. And St. Paul tells us, that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That was his faith. That he actually believed that if this happened, if the Lord put him through this, that he would be the one who raised Isaac from the dead. That he had that power. Uh, and let's push into this image. What does Paul tell us in the second reading? He says, Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but handed him over for us all. The angel stayed Abraham's hand. He did not allow him to sacrifice Isaac. Yet there was no one to stay our hand when we put to death our Savior on the cross. God is the Father who willingly gives his Son for us. And Jesus is the truly willing sacrifice. So there's a lot more uh, we can look into in that image, but I think we need to move on to the transfiguration. We can't pass over that today. First, we ask kind of what exactly happened in the transfiguration? What was it? Uh, what was the point of it? And why is it paired in, in our readings today with the, this first reading, the sacrifice of Isaac? It doesn't seem like there's a lot in common at, at first sight. And finally, why did Jesus do it? Why did he transfigure himself? Mark, uh, in our reading today, I love his description of it because he kind of fumbles for words when he's trying to describe what exactly happened in the transfiguration. He says that Jesus transformed before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. So he's kind of grasping for analogies and comes up with bleach. You know, that's the closest thing he can come up to to what the transfiguration was. Uh, and why, so what do the other evangelists say? Because all, all three synoptic gospels, you know, record the transfiguration, obviously a, a great event. Uh, Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And Luke recalls, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. So we see in all of the evangelists, they're kind of grasping for words to describe this mystical experience. And that's kind of the nature of any experience of God that we have. Uh, that it goes beyond our nature as humans, and so we can't really grasp it in human words. Uh, but Jesus is somehow kind of manifesting his glory and divinity here. He's kind of showing us who he really is, uh, revealing to us what's kind of been hidden. And what does this have to do with the sacrifice of Isaac? Um, when they're on their way back down the mountain, Jesus tells his disciples, do not relate what you have seen to anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So Jesus' death on the cross, when we view it in isolation, when we put ourselves in the position of the apostles who see this happening, uh, it's as horrifying and as foreign and as depressing as really the idea of sacrificing your only son. It kind of takes all hope. So why did Jesus reveal this glory to his disciples? To sturdy them for the trial that they were about to face. Uh, the experience of the transfiguration is the only thing that shields them, in a sense, from the despair of Calvary, from the despair of seeing their Messiah crucified. Uh, so it's true that our Lord is mysterious. Uh, God acts in ways that we often can't grasp completely. And, and we kind of see the will of God as, as though we're looking through a mirror, you know, dimly. Uh, and his pl- but his plan never, ever requires a blind act of faith. Um, he is never unreasonable. Our Lord is never unreasonable. The scholastics always spoke of the spiritual life as, uh, they said, fides quorens intellectum, which means faith seeking understanding. We are a people of faith who seek to understand the Lord constantly. Um, And we will never grasp God completely. Uh, That's what makes heaven so amazing. For all of eternity, we come to know God on a deeper and deeper level. But we continue here, as always, to seek and to learn and to know our Heavenly Father. So this Lent, continue to seek that you may find. Um, If there's something in your life that you're struggling with that seems unreasonable, the Lord has given you an unreasonable burden, then take that to him and ask him to give you the vision to see what he's really calling you to. If there's a teaching in the church that you just don't understand that seems to be a contradiction with reason, dig into it. Read about it. Ask those who know more than you about it. Uh, Look to the spiritual writers and theologians of the church. Uh, but don't let, you know, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard tell you that you need to make a blind act of faith to this, toward this unreasonable thing. Always keep digging into it. And in the meantime, let the kind of mysterious transfiguration spur you on in the time of darkness. Uh, let it kind of stir you in your faith until the fog clears and you can get perspective to know what the Lord's really calling you to. So be faithful and seek the Lord at all times. And when you come to the other side of this, you will say with Peter, uh, Lord, it is good that we are here. Amen.